Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. What a great, great job the worship band just did. Are you allowed to say that? It's tricky, isn't it? With with worship, like, are you, basically they did a great job. We'd all be complaining if they played loads of bum notes, so we might as well compliment them for doing a good job. Um, guys, uh, this is my first opportunity just to say a big thank you for your incredible generosity two weeks ago uh, on our Vision and Gift Sunday. We were absolutely blown away uh, by the wholehearted and sacrificial response from so many people right across uh, the church, all the different services and uh, people uh, giving uh, commitments to pray, their commitments to volunteer time and commitments to give financially as well. And thanks to you with your help, we really are going to be able to step through these amazing doors that God is opening for us. And uh, this just must be the most generous uh, committed church anywhere in the country and I just feel privileged to be part of it so thank you. Um, well it's exciting to be starting a brand new series on ambition. We're going to think together over a few weeks about godly ambition. Uh, ambition tends to be frowned upon by, uh, by Christians. We tend to equate it with uh, arrogance, with independence, with unhealthy uh, striving. Uh, kids all too quickly at school decide that they'd rather not put their hands up. No one wants to seem too keen. We often suffer from the tall poppy syndrome. You know, if anyone seems to be sort of a little too full of themselves, we cut them down to size and the scale of ambition in many churches today tragically is survival let's not die <laughs> that's our ambition in life it's a really bad ambition if you stop and think about it for a second uh, and, and or it's or maybe a more radical one is maybe we could remove the pews and <laughs> you kind of read the new testament and the scale of the project and think how did we ever come uh, to this because the bible is full of heroes of faith who displayed extraordinary ambition. From Abraham, who set out uh, from Ur because he had an ambition from God to take hold of an entire land, to Joseph having dreams about ruling his family <laughs> and a whole bunch of other people as well, to Solomon building the most spectacular edifice for the glory of God that the world had ever seen, to St. Paul setting his sights on preaching the gospel uh, wherever uh, he, the name of Jesus wasn't known and ultimately to preaching the gospel in Rome, which is the center of the universe as far as he's concerned. The Bible is full of ambitious people who did not apologize for that ambition. And so is church history. 
Uh, there's so many examples we could use, but one of my personal favourites has to be good old William Wilberforce. What an ambition that man had uh, to, to uh, reform manners. We need to talk about that one more, by the way, because it's extremely significant. Uh, but also to abolish slavery. And we kind of go, yeah, great, slavery, bad. You know, Jesus, good, good ambition. But we don't understand that slavery was the backbone of the economy of the entire British Empire. He was announcing reforms that would bankrupt people, that would change the social order, that would strike right at the heart of the status quo. And uh, so that was his ambition. And as you probably know, on the plinth of his statue in the north transept of Westminster Abbey, it says the most marvellous thing about William Wilberforce. It says this, listen to this. In an age and a country fertile in great and good men, Wilberforce was among the foremost of those who fixed the character of their times through the abiding eloquence of a Christian life. I love that. This man's ambition meant that he fixed the character of his times. How we need people now who will fix the character of our culture, who will fix the character of this region, who will fix the character of schools and workplaces, of the political and educational system. God calls us, I believe, to live with burning ambition as his followers. And uh, this is an ambitious church. We're not apologetic for that in any way at all. Uh, we're ambitious about fighting poverty with every fibre of our being. We want to change the statistics. We want to change the statistics on divorce. Uh, we are passionate about that because we have one of the highest divorce rates in the country here in this area. We are passionate about preaching the gospel of Jesus. That's why we are planting two churches this year alone. We've already sent the team out to Ibiza uh, and in September we'll be planting into uh, Woking. We are passionate about praying continually uh, uh, around the clock, night and day, and building up towards that. That is an ambition. But it's not just the church that's ambitious. I believe God is calling each one of us to greater levels of ambition, personally, to pray some bigger prayers, to dream some bigger dr dreams, maybe to dare to imagine a better future for your family or your workplace, uh, or your street, or for this region. You know, the biblical word, the Greek word, in the New Testament at least, for ambition, is philotimeome. And uh, that word is used three times in the New Testament in a completely positive way. It's sometimes used negatively, we'll come on to that in a second. But ambition is talked about explicitly and positively on three occasions. We're going to use these scriptures as the backbone of this little series. Firstly, in Romans 15:20, the Apostle Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that is missional ambition, to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Then in 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our ambition to please God. So that is ambition in character and in holiness. Our ambition isn't just to sort of, you know, 
conquer or, or whatever in the name of Jesus. It is to be uh, like Jesus. And that is something that takes great resilience and perseverance and determination and grace. And then the third reference to ambition in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, where the apostle says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life you should mind your own business, work with your hands so that your daily life may win respect. So that ambition is social and it is professional ambition. It isn't wrong to have professional ambition. I look out at many of you. I know you've got a, a, fair, a fair smattering of professional ambition, some of you. And that can be from God. Not necessarily, but it can be from God. Because when we want success for others, when we want success for God's glory, that is a beautiful and an important thing. Um, wherever the words ambition is used negatively in the New Testament, they have to add a word onto it. And the word they add onto it is selfish. You might have heard that phrase, selfish ambition. And the Bible is very clear that selfish ambition is sinful. Uh, ambition that's just, oh, I want to get richer for me. I want to be famous. We see that a lot in our culture right now. Uh, it, it's a sort of narcissism. It's a turning inwards on ourselves, as Martin Luther uh, said. And um, because... I'm launching a series on ambition and we're thinking about the right kind and the wrong kind of ambition, I get the excuse to share with you one of my all-time favourite stories about misguided ambition. I have used this once before at Emmaus. It was a few years ago. Those of you who remember it won't mind hearing it again, I guarantee. And those who haven't, uh, well, here it is. It's, it's a lovely, lovely story about a man from Newport in Rhode Island uh, in America whose ambition was in the realm of archaeology. And so he decided to start sending uh, artifacts, things he dug up, to the Smithsonian Institute. And uh, this is the correspondence uh, from a delightful curator by the name of Harvey Rowe uh, to this man in Newport uh, called Mr. Williams. Dear Mr. Williams, thank you for your latest submission to the Institute labelled 93211D, layer 7, next to the clothesline post, hominid skull. We have given this specimen a careful and detailed examination and regret to inform you that we dis disagree with your theory that it represents conclusive proof of the presence of early man in Charleston County two million years ago. Rather, it appears that what you have found is the head of a Barbie doll <laughs> of the variety that one of our staff who has small children believes to be Malibu bar Barbie. It is evident that you have given a great deal of thought to the analysis of this specimen, and you may be quite certain that those of us who are familiar with your prior work in the field were loath to come to contradiction with your findings. However, we do feel there are a number of physical attributes of the specimen which might have tipped you off as to its modern origin. One, the material is moulded plastic. Ancient hominid remains are generally fossilised bone. Two, the cranial capacity of the specimen is approximately, approximately nine cubic centimetres, well below the threshold of even the earliest identified proto-hominids. Three, the dentition pattern evident on the skull is more consistent with the common domesticated dog than it is with the ravenous man-eating Pliocene clams that you speculate roamed the wetlands of your home during that time. This latter finding is certainly one of the most intriguing hypotheses you've submitted in your history with this institution. 
but the evidence seems to weigh rather heavily against it. Without going into too much detail, let's just say that the specimen looks like the head of a Barbie doll that a dog chewed on, and B, clams don't have teeth. It is with feelings tinged with melancholy that we must deny your request to have the specimen carbon dated. This is partially due to the heavy load our lab must bear on its normal operation, and partly due to carbon dating's notorious inaccuracy in fossils of recent geologic record. To the best of our knowledge, no Barbie dolls were produced prior to 1956 AD, and carbon dating is likely to produce wildly inaccurate results. Sadly, we must also deny your request that we approach the National Science Foundation Phylogeny Department with the concept of assigning your specimen the scientific name Australopithecus spiferino. Speaking personally, I, for one, fought tenaciously for the acceptance of your proposed taxonomy, but was ultimately voted down because the species name you selected was hyphenated and didn't really sound like it might be Latin. However, we gladly accept your generous donation of this fascinating specimen to the museum. And whilst it is undoubtedly not a hominid fossil, it is nonetheless yet another riveting example of the great body of work that you seem to accumulate here so effortless, effortlessly. You should know that our director has reserved a special shelf in his own office for the display of the specimens that you have previously submitted to the institution, and the entire staff speculates daily on what you will happen upon next in your digs at the site you have discovered in your new port backyard. We eagerly anticipate your trip to our nation's capital that you proposed in your last letter, and several of us are actually pressing the director to pay for it. <laughs> we are particularly interested in hearing you expand on your theories surrounding the transpositating filification of fer ferrous metals in a structural matrix that makes the excellent juvenile Tyrannosaurus rex femur that you recently discovered take on the deceptive appearance of a rusty 9mm Sears Craftsman automotive crescent wrench. <laughs> Yours in science, Harvey Rowe, Chief Curator, Antiquities. Um, I've taken about a quarter of my preach with that, but it's worth it, I think you'll agree. I love the kindness of that curator, and we can only wonder at the misguided ambitions of that amateur archaeologist. Ambition is easily misguided, misplaced, misunderstood. But let's just look at the first of those three scriptures that I, I read uh, earlier. Uh, Romans 15, verses 17 to 21, to try and help us understand God's call to ambition. Rev Romans 15, 17 to 21. The Apostle Paul says, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel, where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul's ambition was to preach the gospel where Jesus Christ was not 
No, not building on someone else's foundation. It was uh, an ambition to pioneer new territory. And he makes the most remarkable claim there, doesn't he? He claims to have fully proclaimed the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Now, that is a vast uh, geography. It covers today Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Bulgaria, Greece, Serbia, Albania, and Croatia. How on earth can the Apostle Paul claim to have fully proclaimed the gospel across all those different countries? And the answer is that Paul was an arch strategist. And he had implemented a plan that was both scalable and sustainable for the propagation of the gospel in that region. In other words, he had planted churches that could plant churches self-propagating hubs of gospel transformation. That is God's design. That's why uh, he's designed human beings to grow up and multiply. Uh, because uh, that is the, the, the way of, of life. And it's so with the body of Christ. The body of Christ is designed to, to, to multiply. The gospel is designed to advance. This is good news for all people everywhere. It is the foundation of our culture. It is the hope for our future. People are beginning to realize that ultimately our hope cannot be ultimately political, important though politics are, ultimately economic, important though money is, but ultimately our hope has to be in something greater, and we believe that is Jesus Christ. That's why we're planting the church into Woking. That is why we're planting into Ibiza, Ibiza called Sodom and Gomorrah by uh, uh, um, the Daily Mail. Well, let's go and preach the gospel there because people need Jesus even more uh, there. Uh, we're planting to Woking because about 92% of people in uh, that particular area are nowhere near a church today. You have no interest whatsoever in the 8% already in church. Uh, we want to reach the others and uh, play our part in that. It's not just down to us. And the great thing about Paul's strategy of planting these uh, resource churches throughout that vast region is that it clearly worked. In AD 100, there are estimated to have been 25,000 Christians in the world. That's it. That's about the size of spring harvest. By AD 310, just two centuries later, there were 20 million Christians in the world. How had they gone from a despised, tiny, sectarian Jewish minority to being such a vast presence in the world that the emperor himself finally pretended to become a Christian because he figured if you can't beat them, you better join them. How did that happen when they were members of an illegal religion, where they had almost no church buildings, where they had no organized Bible in the way that we have it uh, today? The truth of the matter is they had the virus. They had gospel ambition, like the Apostle Paul. They took the great commission of Jesus seriously. They knew that they were called not just to survive, but to thrive. Not just to win a few, but to disciple entire nations. Go into all the world, baptize them, make disciples of all nations. It's a vast ambition. The uh, Bible commentator and theologian J.B. Phillips 
uh, in his uh, preface to um, a commentary he wrote called Letters to Young Churches, said this, The New Testament letters were written, and the lives they indicate were led against a background of paganism. There were no churches, no Sundays, no books about the faith. Slavery, sexual immorality, cruelty, callousness to human suffering and a low standard of public opinion were universal. Traveling and communications were chancy and perilous and most people were illiterate. Many Christians today talk about the difficulties of our times as though we should have to wait for better ones before the Christian religion can somehow take root. It is heartening to remember that this faith took root and flourished amazingly in conditions that would have killed anything less vital in a matter of weeks. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become through Christ, literally sons and daughters of God. They were pioneers of a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. They still speak to us, he says, through the centuries. And perhaps if we believed what they believe, we might achieve what they achieved. I believe God wants to renew that kind of fiery urgency, that fierce apostolic ambition. And it really is urgent in our culture that we have gospel ambition. Uh, I read this last week. In 1925, if you were born between 1925 and 1945, there is a 60% chance you attend church today. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, there's a 40% chance that you attend church today. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there is a 20% chance that you attend church today. And if you were born after 1984, there is much less than a 10% chance that you're anywhere near a church today. That is not a good trajectory for the gospel. It's why we must go to those who don't know about Jesus, because they aren't necessarily going to come to us. It's why we must exist as a church for the 90% who are nowhere near church. It's why we must pioneer, we must preach, and we must plant churches. If you only preach the gospel, you will only make decisions of people. But if you plant churches, you will make disciples of them because their lives can be shaped and they can be part of that new humanity. So it's a big vision. There's lots of ambition. To be a Christian is to be caught up in the most ambitious project imaginable that is birthed from the very heart of God. But what on earth does that mean for you and me waking up tomorrow morning? Well, it's interesting that if you look the word ambition up in the diary, it's simply two things. It's desire and determination. It's to have a strong desire about something and a strong determination to make it happen. And that interests me because when we look at what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible, he consistently brings desire Innovation, imagination, and courage, perseverance, determination. That is what the Holy Spirit does. Joel chapter 2 says, uh, when the Spirit of God is poured out in the last day, one of the results of that is there'll be a release of dreams and visions amongst old people, young people, men and women. 
And so one of the things that happens as you open yourself to the Spirit of God isn't just that you might speak in tongues or move in healing or fall over or something like that. One of the greatest evidences of the outpouring of the Spirit of God is actually that you start to imagine new stuff, that you start to have new dreams, new visions. You might go start a business, start a ministry. You might move to a new town. The Spirit of God moves us around. Jesus says in John 3, those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind. No one quite knows where they come from or where they go. There is something of newness that comes comes into us when we get filled with the Spirit of God. And so to be filled with the Spirit is not to be a clone, is not to just sort of sit in a pew, but is to be someone sparking with ideas. But it's not just that. We read in Acts chapter 3, when the Spirit of God comes upon the church, a bunch of frightened uh, believers turn into unashamed, courageous evangelists, and 3,000 get saved. The Spirit of God brings us courage. And so I believe the Holy Spirit today wants to spark new ambitions, new ideas, new imagination, new courage, new determination in us. And this is powerfully articulated in a movie I watched just this week. I've been in America and I finally got round to seeing Hacksaw Ridge. Just give me a wave if you've seen Hacksaw Ridge. Okay, about half year. I'm going to try not to spoil the plot, uh, but it's been out for ages, so frankly, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's the most extraordinary movie. Won two Oscars, uh, made by Mel Gibson. And it's the true story of a guy called Desmond Doss who won the Medal of Honor for his extraordinary bravery in the Second World War in the Battle of Okinawa. And the thing with Desmond Doss is he was a committed Christian who believed that God says to us, do not kill and love your enemies, but was determined to try and extinguish the evil that he saw uh, that they were trying to fight in the Second World War. And therefore he signed up. He wasn't a conscientious objector. He signed up insisted on going into battle and into the most dangerous places but refused to ever touch a gun. They tried to court-martial him, they tried to make him leave the army, they had him beaten up and none of it worked. He refused to quit the army and uh, he went into battle as a medic and um, he was kind of despised initially, but it was to do with his Christian convictions. And I'm just going to show you this little, uh, very powerful clip. So take a look at this.
So Desmond Doss is there surrounded by the vicious brutality of war. And he prays, he says, what is it you want of me? I don't understand, I can't hear you. He doesn't even have a gun to do anything with. And at that moment, as he says to God, I can't hear you, there is this cry of a wounded man. And he hears God, and he says, all right. And he goes, whilst all uh, the rest of, of his squadron are retreating, he walks into the, the Japanese fire. And he uh, finds that wounded man, and he rescues him, he saves him. And then after he's done that, he prays, God, give me just one more. Help me save just one more. And he goes back again and pulls another man out and lowers each one down this cliff face where they can be rescued. Desmond Doss saved 75 of his fellow soldiers that day. He himself was badly wounded three times. And he won, as I say, the Medal of Honor, one of the highest awards for bravery you can get. And he was someone, as a follower of Jesus, saying, I will be there in the heat of the fire, but I will not touch a gun. God's call on your life, the call to ambition, may be closer than any of us think. It isn't exaggeration to say that people are crying and even dying all around us if we have ears to hear that as the call of God, it will shape our lives. Sometimes instead of a something, God gives us a someone. We want a big call, a job title, and he just gives us someone to pour our life out for. Sometimes instead of a big somewhere, you know, the grass is always greener. God gives us the present moment and calls us to live with a little greater ambition, even in our current reality. I don't doubt that some of you will consider going on the church plant to Woking, not because a great glowing stranger appears and tells you to, but simply because you're aware that there is a need and that you can serve, and that in itself might be the call of God. I'm aware that many of you are living with greater ambition than you realize. Just fighting daily battles can be so difficult and take enormous courage. Great ambition begins one person, one need, one response at a time. That's how we disciple nations, one at a time. It's not glamorous. You know, they say of William Wilberforce, you know, who rewrote the character of his time, that he spent most of his time writing letters and doing administration. But we kind of forget that bit because we just want the drama. I wonder if there's maybe just one person, one person that God is calling you to live with a little more ambition for them this week. That you could pour yourself out for them, that you could visit them, that you could invite them on Alpha, that you could somehow go the second mile. You could offer to pray for them this week. I'm so glad that my sister-in-law invited Sammy, my wife, as a teenager, 17-year-old, to a cheesy Christian concert where she gave her life to the Lord. I'm so glad 
that another couple took her under their wing and challenged her about the number of boys she was dating and suggested that Jesus might want her to reduce the ratio a little bit and didn't just do the polite thing but challenged her lifestyle. You know, I have, I'm, invest, I'm invested on that, on that particular one. Uh, I, I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad that a man called Michael Curry, who was my godfather, prayed for me every single day of my life until the day that he died in the mountains of Skye. I, I, I had no idea how that shaped my life, but he lived with some ambition, even for me, his little, often very troubled uh, godson. He had ambition in prayer. It's painful, isn't it? Sending away dear friends, gifted leaders to Ibiza. It'll be painful to send people to Woking. It's even more painful to go. Much more comfortable to stay in the mothership. But in a year's time, there will be people who know Jesus because we go. There'll be people whose wounds have been bound up because we went that would not have had that if we had not gone. And there is an urgency and ambition, as I've said, about the gospel. And so I'm going to finish with one last video clip. We've been talking about people who lived with ambition, uh, great heroes of faith. Uh, We've talked about Abraham, the Apostle Paul, William Wilberforce, Desmond Doss. And I want to finish with Jackie Pullinger, who's coming to speak to us next week. Jackie Pullinger completely changed my life. Uh, It was working with her in Hong Kong, where I really rediscovered my faith and came back to Jesus. And uh, she is, she won't want anyone to say this, I wouldn't dare say this when she's present, she'll just tell me off, but she's a, she's a living legend. They study her in RE lessons at school, and um, she has lived her life with the most extraordinary ambition and with the most extraordinary results. And so for those of you uh, maybe who are less familiar with her, just take a look at this little video of the person we have coming to be with us next week. The principle of the gospel is this. The gospel always brings life to the receiver and death to the giver. If the gospel brought death to Jesus Christ, why would we think that in preaching the gospel it would be any less for us? So no. He says, if anybody would be my disciple, He must take up his cross and follow me. If it killed him to give life to us, and he invites us then to do the same, why would we expect that it would be any less? So the mixture of our message is life and death, and laughter and tears, and such it is. But for us, (laughs) life is never ordinary. Life is never flat. And this is what Jesus said about his father in John 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Jesus was not sentenced to die by his father. He was allowed to choose. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And he said, this is why 
my father loves me. God the Father had this extraordinary plan of winning you and me for eternity by having his son killed. But his son voluntarily responded. No, it's not so easy for him to respond. In fact, he spent his whole life practicing. And even the night before, it was still difficult for Jesus. And he said, God, is there another way? Is there another way? And I know many, many people in the church say, is there another way? And in our Hong Kong churches, it does look as if there's another way. Normal Christians live a normal Christian life, go to meetings, jump up and down on stages while we are exhausted and die. And they say, well, you've got a special ministry, Jackie. And I say, oh, no, I think, I think we're all called to give up our lives. Would you like to do this with us? We'd really like some help. people all over the earth who have never heard of Jesus they are the poorest people they are desperate for food they are desperate for blankets they're desperate for medicine they're desperate for water the most number of people worldwide who've never heard about the love of our Lord Jesus Christ are desperately poor and they are not going to come here to hear the gospel we have to go there so why haven't people gone something to do with guarding a life and living a normal life so other people can go but I say no why don't you all go if you've tasted such good things go to the ends of the earth because those poor aren't going to watch Jesus on TV they haven't got electricity they, they're not going to hear about him unless we go so would you I'm here with a plea for you if you've known the love of God if you've tasted of his sweetness at all there's no other way to serve him except giving up your life and this is voluntary this is not a sentence of death at all we're not sentenced to death we're just privileged to answer his call Shall we be great to get the band back? Jackie Pullinger says there, if you have known the love of God, if you have tasted of his sweetness at all, there is no other way to serve him except giving up your life. And this is voluntary, but it is not a sentence of death. We are privileged to answer his call. And so the gospel of Christ calls us to live with great ambition for the world, for others, for those who don't yet know Jesus, for the glory of God. <clears throat> and I believe the Spirit of God therefore wants to move amongst us to set us on fire and to help us to live with greater ambition, not just to seek kind of comfort and easy life, just on a conveyor belt, sort of surviving from day to day, 
I wonder if there's some people here that if you were to be really honest, you've downgraded your own ambition. You've blocked out the cries of the wounded around you. When we get disappointed, that can crush our dreams. It can stop us dreaming. Maybe some disappointments that are kind of undermining your ability to live with greater ambition. Maybe you're just afraid of rejection and failure and the price that it will cost. Or maybe you are ambitious, but if you're honest, it's selfish ambition. You're deeply motivated by how people see you, by by how much power you've got and how much money you've got in your bank. In fact, you measure your identity (laughs) around those things. You walk taller when you feel impressive and rich and you walk smaller when you don't. You were never designed to be that cheap. You're called to be a carrier of the glory of God. To be someone who lives your life in such a way as to change the lives of others for eternity. You're a son and daughter of God, designed to rule and reign with him. And there's an urgency to the gospel. We're called to live with ambition. One or two churches are looking at us and going, oh, you're growing really fast, 25% last year. 12% of the church came to Christ in the last year. And they think it's amazing But when I look at the New Testament, this isn't amazing. We haven't even begun. The times are urgent. The gospel works. And we are its ambassadors. Let us not live small lives. Let us pray big prayers, dream big dreams, take big risks, lay it all down, and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I just wonder if the Spirit wants to renew some desire in some of us just to dare to dream again. I wonder uh, if he wants to birth new vision, give some of us new courage, because if we're honest, we're just afraid of this stuff. I wonder if some of us, he wants to open our ears like Desmond does to hear the cries of the wounded, the people in your own street who are hurting, and to have ambition even just for them. So let's just take a moment now, shall we, to be still. Earlier we sang this song about the joy of surrendering to Christ. And in a moment I just want to invite those who'd like to do so to surrender. And we'll, there's only two ways in the movies of doing it. You either wave a white hanky or you just hold your hands up in surrender. And I just, it's just a guess there aren't many white hankies in the, in, in the room. So we're going to hold our hands oh there's a couple well done good good if you've got a white hanky feel free to wave it around now and and shelf only if it's clean there's a there's a surprising number of white handkerchiefs in the room 
This is like an anthropological study. Uh, so you can do that or, or just hold your hands up. But this, this, this is just for those who are saying either I'm aware that I've downgraded ambition, maybe because of disappointment, maybe just the desire for an easy life, or those who are saying I'm aware that I'm very ambitious, I'm very focused, but it can be a little selfish, my ambition. It's, it's not for others. It's not for the glory of God. And I want to take that ambition and I want to start to really lay it on the altar and use it for the gospel of Christ, whatever that might mean. Okay. And this is right at the start of the series. So it's a good time for us just to kind of posture ourselves available and open to the spirit of God. Um, so uh, this isn't for everyone. No one feel any pressure here. But if you, if you, if, if you are saying, yeah, I really want to surrender over this issue. I want to open myself to new ambition. I want to open myself to my ambition being for Christ in a, at a greater level, less for me, more for him. Just hold your hands up or wave your white hanky around and we're just going to sing a song and hold them. I don't know how long you can hold them up without the hurting, but let's hold them up in surrender as we move into this uh, song. This looks like a revival shot right here. So let's just, let's just worship. <laughs> 